0: Hi, I'm Bill Crystal. welcome to Conversations. I'm pleased to be joined today by my friend Jeff Bergner, a veteran of the Academy, Capitol Hill, the private sector, now back teaching again. Uh, worked came to Washington in, what, 1978? To, yes. to work for Senator Luger, became his chief of staff, staff director of Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which is a major job in Congress, and then an important government relations firm. So we're gonna talk about Congress. Okay. We're going to explain what's what's right and what's wrong with Congress. and. Uh, and uh, I, I, you've written a book recently, which I highly recommend, The Vanishing Congress, Reflections on Politics in Washington, which has wonderful stories and anecdotes for your time there, as well as serious reflection about Congress's role in the, in the scheme of the regime. So, so why is it vanishing? What's wrong? What's the problem? What, what, what
1: well, where to start is the problem. Uh, right. I, I think Congress has been in a uh, in, in a very bad place for the last four or five decades, uh, more so now than ever, probably. And uh, it's interesting, uh, a lot of people come up with different schemes for how to fix Congress. Uh, right. Some of them are schemes like we need more transparency in campaign fundraising, uh, we need to fix the gerrymandering problem, we need to uh, have public financing of elections, we need uh, uh, rank preference voting, the latest fad. Right. I just heard someone talking about that in the car on the way over here. Right. Uh, there are term limits, I'm proposals. Sure there are huge numbers of listeners on the uh, driving yeah. thinking, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, rank choice voting, whatever it's called. Just That's just what funny. I want to hear about. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, a lot of uh, folks are very uh, enthusiastic about term limits, about the uh, limitations on what members can do when they leave in terms of lobbying for whom and for, for how long. So there are all kinds of ideas about how to fix Congress. My notion about this is that uh, virtually all of those have nothing to do with the problem. Uh, if you think about it, they all have one thing in common, and that is uh, they deal with how you get to Congress, or in the case of term limits, how long you can stay or what happens when you leave, but none of them really address what happens in Congress, which I think is the real problem. How uh, Congress works. How Congress works or doesn't. The what processes, what procedures, what rules has it put in place? Those are the things which I think bedevil the Congress, not so much these matters about coming and going. Some, some of the some of those proposals are, uh, might make perfectly good sense if, if you're for good government, uh, but I just don't think they have much to do with uh, fixing Congress. Uh, If you look at, uh, for example, the gerrymandering question, uh, some of these districts are drawn in such a way with squiggles to to benefit the majority party. Um, Often, by the way, it benefits uh, incumbents from the minority party as well. Uh, Some of this doesn't look like it makes a lot of sense on the face of it. But uh, to think that that would have much to do uh, with making Congress a more hospitable, efficient place, I think, is a mistake. The same dynamics, I think, take place in the House and Senate and there's been no gerrymandering in the Senate. Every state line has been exactly the same since whenever that state came into the Union, uh, going back to 1788 or 1789, right up to the present for hundreds of years. And you have the same, same dynamics in the House as you do in the Senate. So I think to expect too much from gerrymandering reform would be a mistake. Likewise, uh, term limits. Um, I, I have, as I suppose a lot of people do, a certain sympathy for that notion, you see people who are there forever. Uh, On the other hand, uh, the framers thought this through very carefully, and they could have put term limits in place if they had wanted to, decided it was better that people have to repair back to the electorate from time to time, and that would keep them close to the electorate. Um, I I come down mildly, I suppose, against term limits uh, for a number of reasons. One. As a practical matter, I think all it does is strengthens the staff. And as you will see when we talk a little further in a minute, I think the staff is already far too strong in the Congress. That's part of the problem. And this would have the effect of making it even stronger. I I can remember so many occasions where you'd see a new congressman or a new senator come in and become the chairman of the Foreign Operations Subcommittee, a field he knew absolutely nothing about. And who ran him around for the first couple of years? Well, the staff director for the committee and the other folks on the committee, the legal counsels. And and in effect, he was more a servant of theirs than vice versa, and ended up uh, not really uh, initiating any new departures at all, but continuing the old, because the people who were actually running the place had been there for 10 or 15 or 20 years. So if you want to put term limits on staff, that's a different matter. but. I, I, I'm not sure that all the marvelous wonders that people attribute to that would take place. We don't have to just be hypothetical about it. Uh, we after all put in term limits, the Republicans did in the 50s, on the president. Framers had seen no reason to put term limits on the president. The Republicans, I guess, thought they would take a final whack at FDR in the 50s, that you know, if it's good enough for George Washington, it's good enough for whoever's going to run for president now. And. Um, so they put term limits in for the president. I, I, I read all of the literature on these things. That, uh, I suppose a bad sign about me to read all these things, but I don't think I've ever seen an argument, much less a persuasive argument, that term limits on presidents have either improved the presidency or made it worse. So what about so what's the problem with Congress? Let's get to this issue. So, I, I think the problem is this: that the framers put a number of, of of restrictions on Congress. They thought it was going to be the strongest branch of government. Uh, as they put it in the Federalist Papers, it would draw all into its vortex, uh, and they saw the need to make it a little less strong. And so they did all the things you read about in Government One Hundred and One. They divided it into two uh, houses of Congress. They put. Uh, restrictions in on, on what the Congress could do in terms of treating the states equally, in terms of the Bill of Rights, in terms right. of all of the restrictions that, that, that are in the basic text plus the Bill of Rights. Uh, on top of that, uh, they, they, they put the presidential veto in. Uh, they debated for a long time whether the veto should be absolute or not non-existent, and they ended up making it conditional so that it could be overridden. Those, they thought, we're strong enough to balance the efficiency of the government with the protection of liberties, which is the real trick, to make it strong but not too strong. Congress apparently has not been satisfied with those and has put in place a number of procedures which I think limit um, and, and restrict its own capability of acting, uh, tie its own hands, and in that way are self-created problems. And so those are the things I focus on in this book. Uh, there are any number of them. Uh, Congressman Gallagher has some ideas about how to fix the House. That's what he knows since he serves in the House. I make proposals for four different uh, changes in the Congress to make it a more efficient body, two of which affect both the House and Senate, and two of which are Senate-specific because I think there are more problems as a result of how the Senate acts or doesn't act Yeah, I'm struck House.
0: how much you focused on the Senate in the book. That's where you worked, and, but, right. and it's supposed to be and one might say well and so let's get but the problem i mean is it just ineffective governance in a way i mean lack of deliberation lack of resolution of problems how would you sort of
1: characterize
0: it let me let me characterize or are we it, just being look, nostalgic and hoping for something that never existed and so look
1: forth? i i think it all has to do with the procedures they put in place not to advance legislation much less good legislation but procedures that are put in place by members in order to protect themselves and their own imaginary rights, how often do you hear, you don't have to be on the Hill but a week before you hear, my, my, my rights as a member of the House, my rights as a Senator, my rights as a member of the Foreign Relations Committee, my rights as a member of the minority. You hear it all the time, this imaginary plethora of rights these folks think they have. And this, I think, really is the problem. And to illustrate it, one of the things which I think they should reform promptly, is the congressional budget process. Uh, This is, and I don't think this is an overstatement, a process which is ridiculous. Uh, It is designed in no way to be efficient or successful, uh, but is an accretion of various things over the years, ending finally in the the Budget Act of 1974. Just to explain, you you have a budget. The first thing you do is you cut 68 or 69% out of it, and you never consider that. Uh, th- those are the so-called entitlement programs and the debt, the, the interest payments on the federal debt. You never look at that. Uh, it's not as if Congress says- the biggest
0: they're on autopilot and don't require fresh legislation yes. each year, so yeah. yes. Yeah. It's not as
1: if Congress says, well, this year uh, we will spend $800 billion on Social Security. Okay. On Social Security and Medicare are the two giant right. entitlement programs. Rather, uh, Congress never says anything about it. And what happens is there's is a bunch of formulas that establish how many uh, years you had to have worked, how many quarters, and what benefits you get, and you multiply that by however many people there are, and whatever that ends up to be, that's how much we spend on Social now, Security. Congress could
0: change, and does change but Congress, I mean, Congress has the
1: authority to change anything and everything virtually in the way the federal government operates if it has a two-thirds majority. Its powers are enormous, but the fact that it doesn't reflects the problem. So Congress, I'm not recommending an annual inclusion of that into the budget, but certainly they ought every three years or so to really look at these programs and see, are these affordable? It's not only because these programs are so big, but because they're growing far faster than the rest of the government, they threaten in a way to swallow up the entirety of the federal budget. And the default right now is to do nothing. The default is you're to saying do nothing. is make them at least to make decide them look at, look to do at nothing person. or not, you know. That would be an improvement, uh, not substantively, but <laughs> right procedurally. And so that's the first thing you say. The second thing, um, they've set up a distinction between authorizations and appropriations. Uh, this is a little bit in the weeds for people who aren't Washingtonian-speak people. But in a nutshell, the difference is that the authorizing committees are supposed to think, what programs and policies do we need to describe those, to put them into place, and then to say, and they should be funded up to a maximum of X dollars. We're going to create a new program on housing and fund it for $200 million. That provides not a penny to that program. It's the appropriation process. Afterward, the appropriations committees come by at the end, theoretically, and say, all right, we now agree to fund this for, X dollars. That's where the money uh, goes and, and really comes from. That's when the Treasury can uh, expend funds and provide them for the uh, department that's running this program. Um, there is really no justification to my mind for having this radical distinction between authorizations and appropriations. And if I had my druthers, I would get rid of the appropriations committees altogether and allow every single authorizing committee to both authorize and appropriate in its area. Uh, This, I think, would strengthen those committees immeasurably. Right now, we're at a place where the authorizing committees hardly ever authorize anything. The armed services committees are the only exception. Every year, they make it a point to do an authorizing bill. Uh, from time to time, there'll be one in uh, Homeland Security. But for the most part, right. it doesn't happen. In foreign relations, the last time there were authorization bills for both State Department authorization and foreign assistance authorization were when I was the staff director in 1985, which is, what, uh, 34 years ago.
0: I mean, the theory of the authorizing committees was, and to some degree is still, I guess, that This is where you have the substantive debate on should government do X or what's the right way to address housing problem vouchers or I'm making this up you know government building the housing, and then the appropriating committee says well this year's budget is X total and we can appropriate this money it's not a crazy thing and it's not but and and when you're passing Obamacare you probably want a committee that allegedly has a lot of expertise in healthcare, and has witnesses and testimony and debates about how to structure
1: the program. That's sort of the theory of it. But in practice, it doesn't work. Uh, The authorizing committees don't authorize much of anything anymore. There's certainly no annual authorizations. And what happens is that the appropriators then, in effect, both authorize what they feel like and appropriate what they feel like. And so uh, we have maybe one too many steps in that process. And does that
0: make it easier? Do you think the leadership is
1: so what I've been struck by, you we, we discuss this in the book,
0: is how much everything is done by leadership now. It used to be that these committees, right. either authorizing or appropriating, were powerful. And the chairman would, and sure, the ranking yeah. member would. A legendary
1: chairman John Dingell from Michigan, right. the House Energy and Commerce Committee. But now
0: everything's written in the speaker's office or the majority leader's sure. office. and and
1: and that's been a, a a trend which really I think was at its absolute height uh, with Harry Reid when he was the majority leader. Nothing came to the Senate floor but what it was written in Harry Reid's own office. The committees really didn't do anything at that point, point. and not only that, but it was written in such a way that it couldn't be amended. Uh, when it came to the floor. And so the only things he was willing to take a chance on putting on the floor were things which he thought would be slam dunks, 100% successes. You can't really hope for that if you're going to have an effective functioning Congress. You've got to compromise a little around the edges. When we pass our authorization bills, I would say we had 90% of it was what we wanted. Uh, 10% were things that came in that the committee wanted, that the chairman didn't, I didn't. Uh, we then went to conference, uh, or we, we went to the floor, and we maybe got 10% more bad things on the floor, mm-hmm. things that we couldn't prevent or talk people out of offering. And so maybe the bill was at 80% of what we wanted, but then when we had the House Senate conference, we fixed all the things that, that we hadn't wanted in the Senate side, mm-hmm. the same way the House was busy fixing what it hadn't wanted on the House floor, and it was back to 90% or so of what we wanted in the bill, which it seems to me. Is pretty much good enough for government work uh, if so you, you would get ninety percent of what you want.
0: That reflects more deliberation and more thought than the current system. Clearly. Because otherwise, the fact that it's ninety percent doesn't clearly prove anything unless it's ninety percent of something that reflects that, greater expertise sure. and greater sure. Debate, which which we took it on ourselves to think we had. But you did, but you had an actual staff. Of we did. dozens sure. who were foreign policy experts, sure. and so I mean, I'm struck with the, the stuff written in the leaders' offices. It's really often, and you've seen this in Obamacare and in some of the Trump era legislation. Right. It's right. you know it's sloppy, it's haphazard, it's done until it two a.m. because they're in some crazy deadline, and they're sure. it's all about whipping wh- rushing stuff through without real debate. I mean, sure. it's sure. not too nostalgic about the old days to say that there was much more debate both in committee there was much more debate in committee and on the floor and
1: and on the floor why debate anything on the floor if you have no chance of ever having an amendment that would be accepted this a little bit is the problem people ask why are republicans so manic about wanting to get rid of obamacare well the answer is because it was put down their throats with no chance to be amended uh, and therefore uh, i mean they're looking for ways to still speak to this. If it had been done in such a way that President Obama had said he wanted to do it originally but decided not to, uh, then it would have been, I think, something which would have had some staying power in the American system because yeah. it, it would have had some support in both parties. Now it has none in one party.
0: And so what rules or processes internally have, I guess, weakened the committees, weakened deliberation, and strengthened this attempt to make it more of a... know, rubber stamp for leadership or or a deal the leadership has worked out with the the president.
1: Let let me me finish on the budget first, because it's not just that we have authorizations and appropriations and the authorizers don't do much. We also have the budget committees that have come into the process. These committees were meant to be ones that put the broad outlines together of what should be spent in any given year. Their work is basically ignored by both the authorizing committees and the appropriating committees and also the leadership, by the way. Uh, Half the time, they never get a bill done. They certainly don't conference it with the Senate and come to a joint house Senate position. There is no particular reason to have the budget committees at all except one. And that is they have this one part of the budget committee rules that allows them, with certain spending things, to be able to come forward in a way under a process called reconciliation, which allows the Senate than to consider it with a simple majority vote, rather than the 60 votes that every other piece of legislation requires in the Senate. If, as I propose or will propose in a minute, the Senate gets rid of that 60 vote requirement for legislation, to my mind, there is absolutely no purpose to have budget committees. And so, if we have at least one too many, if not two too many ways in which people are involved in this leading to no particular good outcome, uh, I would get rid of the budget committees and perhaps put the leadership in the front rather than the back and have them and the senior members of powerful committees maybe put some guidelines out for their own house. Here's what you have to spend, armed services, $750 billion, you know, foreign affairs, $50 and so forth, uh, and then let the authorizers uh, do this. Uh, this was supposed to be a process that was so rational it would end up balancing out somehow spending and taxing and everything else. Uh, in the years since 1974, we have had exactly four uh, budgets that are either balanced or in surplus and all of the rest of them not only deficits but deep enormous deficits such that we're now financing 20% of everything we spend by borrowing it
0: is amazing we uh, passed this budget modern progressive rationalizing you might say budget control act which I think was done with good motives mostly in the 70s yeah. and it yeah it doesn't control it doesn't it's supposed to make you make the trade-offs and think of it holistically in the old days the, Claim was the I remember this from college. Even you know they just pass one, you know they pass one thing here and one thing there, and no one's forcing it all to be kind of reconciled. That's why it's called reconciliation, right? And 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 instead, it's the opposite. It's allowed the deficits to just.
1: In in theory, you could say there's a certain formal symmetry and niceness to it all, but it doesn't work. It's too complex. And so, what you end up getting is the appropriations committees under this process don't even produce appropriations bills like they're supposed to. Uh, there's the, the thought of this whole process is there should be 12 appropriation bills, one for each different area of government, each department, and, and this then uh, should be done, passed, reconciled between the House and Senate, sent to the president. So that usually happens with, what, one or two, maybe three appropriations bills out of the 12 in a given year. Um, and the rest don't, and so the rest go where? They go into an omnibus bill, uh, which is usually called a continuing resolution because it basically continues the spending at last year's level, plus whatever everybody can agree on, you know? uh, Puerto Rico had a bad year, they need $5 billion, we'll give that them too. Uh, But they can't even do those bills in a timely way. You come to September 30th and it's still not done, Uh, and so you pass a 60-day one to take you to November, 30th, and then you realize you can't get it done before Christmas, so you pass another one until February 15th. Right now, as we speak, we're in the, whatever it is, 28th day of the government shutdown, uh, in which Congress has not produced a budget that the House and Senate can agree on. Yeah, it's amazing. Leave aside the president.
0: And it really is, um, it doesn't look like we, get the worst, we have the worst of both worlds, which is in both the budget process and in the broader legislative process, which is sort of, they can't do anything. There's no deliberation, there's no Reasonable debate why don't we change this program in this way to make it this research shows that this part right. isn't working um, on the one hand, so the status quo just stays in place because you get this continuing resolution it's the status quo interrupted by occasional crises yeah. shutdowns yeah. cliff you know with deadlines, cliffs you know, going off the cliffs and so forth, and then it's you know there's a crisis and there's midnight all night negotiations, and then you extend the status quo, i guess yeah. uh, Or occasionally you jam through some il- some piece of legislation Occasually, without much occasionally discussion. Occasionally, something does
1: happen. Uh, the tax bill was an example yeah. of that. But
0: then it's jammed through in a not in a very deliberative way right. and right. without uh, too many amendments. It was the
1: Republican version of Obamacare. It was jammed through on a straight party line vote. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, it's not found a kind of settled place in our discourse. But the Democrats can't wait to repeal it if they could. Right. Uh, and that's
0: where it leaves us. I mean, the theory was, and I think in practice when I got here in 85, and you were here a little ahead of me, so i came to education which is a good maybe a good example because it's such a second tier area honestly that
1: but you know we had
0: proposals uh the hill had its favorite the ranking uh, the chairman and who'd been on these approaches appropriating committees as you say them the authorizing ones they had their favorite programs they would protect yep. you'd come to them and say look this really doesn't work well we can do more for vocational education by changing this getting rid of this program and doubling that one and they would sometimes agree, they wouldn't agree. But I do remember there are actual substantive discussions more often with staff than with the members. Probably. Yes. I mean, some members became sort of experts because they were on those committees for a long time. And it was at least something like the way government's supposed to work, where there's a kind of reasonable discussion each what? year or every couple of years about, well, should you do it this way or that way? Maybe you shouldn't do this. And there'd be a bit of a fight, either an ideological fight or a just ex fight of kind of expert experts almost. But I have the impression, and I've talked to people, and more from the executive branch side, but I think it's true. This just doesn't happen anymore. It I is mean, far more
1: the exception than the rule. Yeah. Um, and when, when I was, at and that's why
0: you want the strong committees, I think. Right. When I was them. when
1: I was at the State Department, uh, I was Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs, and my job was to kind of this lead was our 07, dealings, 08, lead uh, lead 0, 2005 through eight. 5 through eight. Yeah. Uh, to lead the State Department's uh, dealings with Congress, which which is why I'm now so great. Yes. But. Um, I had come out of the authorizing committee world, the Foreign Relations Committee, and so I was hopeful that this would be a time when we could get them busy authorizing, and we could discuss, you know, some changes that we needed to make in foreign policy and so forth, and bring our people and their people together and so forth. The the, the two authorizing committees couldn't authorize anything, uh, and 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 and. I had to deal still with the Foreign Relations Committee for two totally different reasons. One, they were the committee that handled treaties that we would send to them. And secondly, and on a daily basis, more importantly, they were the committee that handled nominations we would send to them. And so, I had to deal with them for those reasons. I had no reason particularly to deal with the House Foreign Affairs at all. Where I had to deal was with the small subcommittees on the Appropriations Committee, which had our budget. Uh, and indeed were likely as not to put some policy riders or restrictions in in the appropriations bill with the funding, that was where all the action was. And so it wasn't as if this was a a reasoned debate anymore. Uh, Quite to the contrary, it was a last minute, 11th hour thing where we're busy trying to prevent them from doing something silly and they're busy trying to get something done in the dead of night so that nobody could see it and get what they want. Uh, It was a very, very bad process. And how did the committees lose so much power? That's the thing that strikes me
0: so much over the 30 years I've been here. You know, oh. these committee chairmen who were so powerful when I came. And now, honestly, I followed this stuff fairly closely. I don't even know half the committee chairmen. And, right. And,
1: and why would you? I yeah. mean, they, they don't no do that much them. anyway. Yeah. Um,
0: so how did that really yeah. change?
1: Well, it, it, you know, I, I imagine there were a variety of factors, but. Um, Uh, one was there was a willingness on the part of committee chairmen, at least to take their members seriously and and to produce legislation that came out of their committees in a way that it had bipartisan support it wasn't the 11 to 10 vote 11 Republicans against 10 Democrats but uh, they had had relatively more open markups the chairman still controlled things without a doubt But uh, other members on both sides had an opportunity to have some input into the process. And therefore, they weren't dead set against it when it came to the floor. We did that with our bill. I mean, people that we had two days of markups and people had all kinds of ideas. And whether we liked them or not, some of them slipped in. Uh, And I remember at one point, um, uh, Senator Sarbanes, uh, who was a very uh, dour uh, character from Maryland, not my favorite senator. came up to me after we just passed the uh, State Department authorization bill on the Senate floor by a vote of 75 to 20 or whatever it was. And I thought, oh, well, what's, what's coming now? And he said, you know, I, I've, I don't agree with everything Chairman Luger's doing or everything you're doing, but I have to say you've put us back on the map again like we used to be. And so I think you've done a good job in that way. I, I'm not sure I ever valued a compliment as highly as that one, because that in a little bit of a way was our intention. Uh, to give people enough input that they would be for this project even if it wasn't perfect. Uh, do you now think it's, it's got to be perfect or not. It's got to be all one way or all the other.
0: Is it the polarization, do you think, that led to the weakening of the committees and the, all the power flowing into leadership? Or is it the do, other developed campaign finance? I've sort of wondered about that. I, mean,
1: I, I think, to some degree, um, it is, and I'll, I'm going to hedge about that in a minute. But to some degree, it is. Uh, we now have a country that's very riven down the middle. Uh, and it's not just on the basis of whether or not you, you would like some particular provision about Obamacare, or you don't, or you want a 38% tax rate, or 48%. It's not about that. It's about two fundamentally different visions about what government's supposed to be doing, what you might call the, the framers vision and the progressive vision two very different ways of looking at what government's supposed to be doing. And, and and I think that's made it much more difficult because to some extent the members do reflect what, you know, what people want. Uh, and people right now are very divided about what they want. At the same time, if you think about it, all the rules that they have in place in the chambers accentuate uh, the partisan differences. So let's say you win an election 51-49. You, in fact, then control the majority leader's job, you control the chairmanship of every single committee, and you have two-thirds of the staff compared to the other party having one-third of the staff. And so, uh, in a way, you, the, the, the rules um, make the parties a little more naturally apart because the people who surface uh, as leaders or as chairs are people who've been there for a while. And how have they been there for a while? Well, they've been there for a while because they get elected, re-elected, re-elected, re-elected. So, for a while, you had Southern Democrats who were the chairman of all the committees. Then you had a period of time where a lot of uh, urban black legislators had become chairman, Charlie Rangel and this one that one. Why? Because they came from safe, safe seats and they outlasted everybody else. Same reason. And so, to some extent, the rules make it very easy for things to split to the sides, but when it's reinforced by this partisan difference we have now, or philosophical difference even, about government, I think that has contributed to it.
0: And I suppose the sorting of the parties. So the, yep. there aren't so many conservative Democrats, there aren't so many liberal Republicans.
1: Party loyalty does seem
0: to have overwhelmed committee loyalty or regional loyalty or almost your own ideas, your own personal ambition at times. I guess there's a fair amount of personal ambition floating around, but I, I am that does seem to be part of this, of what's is what's making the system not working the way you would like it to work? Well, party
1: loyalty certainly overwhelms institutional loyalty. Yeah, uh, that's a better way of putting it. If you it. look at it uh, uh, over and over again, uh, when Barack Obama was busy uh, uh, signing executive orders on, on immigration issues, whether for the DACA folks or more generally for people who are here in the country, um, the Democrats weren't saying well, this is clearly an affront, uh, this is an executive order, that shouldn't happen. We have our rights. Uh, former Senator Byrd from West Virginia, uh, who had his pluses and minuses, that was certainly one of his pluses. He cared a great deal about the institution in a way that it's not clear to me people care about the institution as much as they do um, advancing whatever the philosophical slash partisan uh, position that they, that they might have. And that tends again to uh, be shaped by the leadership.
0: So I guess ambition, counteracting ambition, is supposed to be institutional it, it's ambition, It's supposed to right? be
1: institutional, but it doesn't seem to work that way anymore. Um, and in, in, in a way, I, I think I would attribute a bit of it to the whole process that people have by which they come to Congress. Uh, once upon a time, Uh, We had people that uh, simply ran for office or then afterward uh, were chosen by party bosses. Uh, And that's all gone now. And what you have now virtually 100% is a a primary process in both the House and Senate and and also with the presidency. And the primary process, um, people come out of that uh, owing really nothing to anybody at all. Uh, they haven't had their edges rounded off, as it were, by having to deal with people in their district, but rather you decide one day you're going to run for the House. And so you put together a committee, you get some people who are your friends and neighbors to give you some money. That gets you started. Then you hire a staff. You have your own press operation, your own fundraising operation, your own policy operation. And so, you know, you come to Washington as a kind of a, an independent figure. Um, and the notion of compromising is very far uh, from somebody's mind when they don't owe anybody anything Uh, they come unencumbered as it were uh, and that that i think has made it a little harder uh, for the chamber to act in collegial ways Uh, people are their own entrepreneurs political entrepreneurs these days uh, and not really part of what they think of as a larger uh, larger project
0: And they're political entrepreneurs. But even so, I would say there's been a decline of entrepreneurship in the last 20 years or so, 30 years. And that is that driven, I think it's driven partly, I'm not sure what it's driven by. They have to spend so much time raising money. They don't become experts on particular issues. Fear of being primaried, so you don't want to have a heterodox view in your party. I don't know, but it seems to me there's fewer Jack Kemps deciding I'm going to just, I have views on economic policy. I'm not even on the House Ways and Means Committee in his case. Uh, But I'm going to advance them, you know, and...
1: I'm not sure I would agree that there's a decline in political entrepreneurship in in that sense that I... It seems to me still all kinds of people take it in their mind to run for office these days, and they they do uh, without any uh, encumbrance, really. Um, I
0: agree with that. The political entrepreneurship, I guess issue entrepreneurship, maybe they...
1: That's a different thing, and I I think to some extent this is a cycle in which since the Congress doesn't do much anymore... Yeah, why? The currency is not, I'm a great legislator, but the currency is, I'm a fairly popular person. Uh, And and the currency, uh, the incentive system, the reward system is is to get press uh, rather more than to be a careful legislator. not not to pick somebody out, but if you look at uh, this phenomenon that's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I mean, she's far and away the most well-known member of the House of Representatives, almost as much so as Nancy Pelosi, right? She not only hasn't done anything legislatively, she won't do anything legislatively. It's perfectly clear not this term and probably not the next term and the next term and the next term, if she's elected and re-elected, but still she has sort of uh, made her way by virtue of the currency of the press, rather than um, uh, being a careful and thoughtful legislator, there's not much uh, reward for that in a way. Uh, people are freelancers and, and they're there for their own purposes. And
0: I do think the, the press, people have always cared about getting good press, but the kind of good press they got often was connected to a piece of legislation so that. McCain was campaign finance reform. Something probably both of us, maybe both of us, don't think was terribly worked out terribly well. Uh, but you know, there was actual legislation, sure. And he and Feingold worked extremely hard on it. And sure. they Built a bipartisan group, and they had outside groups in, and uh, so they also wanted the renown of, of, of getting it done, and they liked the rhetoric sure. of it too. Sure. But That is what strikes me. Now it's sort of just disconnected from half these members feel free to give speeches and tweet and stuff and this is a a trope on twitter you know gee if only you were a congressman or senator you could do something about that you know you sort of keep wondering where's the amendment that would embody their help their views that they're expressing absolutely
1: and i i worked for a member who who was a legislative craftsman in the sense that uh, he was very much involved in his first term with the Chrysler bailout, it was called somewhat negatively, but it was structured in a way that Chrysler had to pay it back and, and kept the company going and it all worked out fairly well. Uh, or the South Africa sanctions legislation, which was a bipartisan, overwhelmingly bipartisan vote in the House and Senate, so much so that it overcame President Reagan's veto. Uh, or the Nunn-Lugar legislation uh, uh, with f- former Soviet Union's missiles and, and launchers and so forth. Um, all of this was legislative craftsmanship, which is not so much in evidence anymore. Um, right. You don't see somebody coming forward with thoughts about something that might actually happen and working that for months and years, in some cases, to get it done. Uh, it's rather more the currency of the press, you know, you, you can be famous overnight if you say something outrageous.
0: I suppose that's something that's hard to change in terms of the internal workings of Congress or the, yeah. or even the incentives, do you think, of the senators? Well, I, I,
1: I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. I I have a very outlier view on congressional staff, which I think are part of the problem. Uh, How many pieces of legislation do you suppose are introduced by members of the House and Senate in any given Congress, two years of Congress? Uh, And the answer is, lately in the the past several Congresses, about 12,000. For openers, if anybody thinks that the Republic needs 12,000 fixes to make it better, uh, they're a bit crazy to start with. a lot of this legislation is introduced and goes nowhere, not because it 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 has failed, but because it was really never intended to go anywhere. Um if you look at it, about two percent or so of those twelve thousand bills are enacted either on their own or more likely as amendments within larger bills as Congress tends to do fewer and larger bills these days. Um why? Uh well In some cases, uh, because the process is hard and complex and should be simpler, but in other cases, it's more a question of introducing something to position yourself or for the purpose of preening uh, rather than that you have any real hope that this is going to get introduced. Where do these 12,000 pieces of legislation come from? They don't come out of the members' heads. It's not like members are thinking up 30 or 40 legislative initiatives per member. Uh, They come from the staff. The staff have great ideas. This should be fixed, that should be fixed, this should be done, and so forth. And they talk the member into sponsoring it, and then then it becomes a big project. You have to go find co-sponsors uh, because it has to have a certain gravity to it of 20 co-sponsors. Or Then you're busy trying to find like, a subcommittee chairman or a committee chairman pleased to have a hearing on this so you can give it a little credibility. Um, and then that gins up the opposite side who's opposed to whatever this is, and they have to spend hours and weeks trying to prevent this and find people who can prevent it if it ever does go anywhere. Uh, and, and as a result, 98% of what's introduced in the Congress goes nowhere, uh, which is a very bad sign about an institution. I think it'd be far better uh, if Congress introduced a massively less number of bills and actually took them seriously. and my notion about that is is that the congress would be 20 percent more efficient if it had 20 percent less staff Hmm. the usual argument is quite to the contrary uh, usually made by people who've never uh, visited the congress i think that how do you get congress how do you make it stronger well you get more staff and you hire more staff and you pay them more and you get better people and all that um i i just don't see it in this case it seems to me that the staff has driven the body down into the weeds uh where it simply churns its wheels constantly without much happening, members would have a little more of a sense, a uh, natural sense, I think, that uh, of, of things that are important or not important, but they allow their staff to talk them into doing all these things because, well, that's what they're there for.
0: Just so struck and that and they depend on their staff and then their time gets totally taken up by- Totally. The staff, yeah. fundraising, constituent and, visits. And, and, and
1: if, you, if you really restricted not restricted, but had a much smaller number of pieces of legislation that were actually things that people thought of to fix. You know? And it's not like there aren't obvious candidates around. Immigration reform comes to mind. It's perfectly obvious, no matter what your position on it is, that this is something Congress should address. This is not a project for one person, for the president, much less some district court judge in Washington state who thinks he's running the country now. It's something Congress as a whole should address because it's got a lot of moving parts. and and and. Nevertheless, you know, there, there is not really but one or two versions of a, of a comprehensive immigration reform bill, none of which have any chance of passing. Yeah. Uh, and, and so there's, there's simply not the reward system in place for doing that anymore. It's rather that you have an outrageously strong position on immigration, that the wall is immoral. That, that's sort of the currency these days, rather than actually trying to do something about the immigration system, which is clearly a need of something being done.
0: And one of the great things, in the textbooks at least, or at least when I studied this stuff a little bit, I mean, is the, the, having a federal and congressional system, let's say, as opposed to a national, unitary parliamentary system. There's a huge amount of opportunity for access for different group, interest mm-hmm. groups, scholars, points of view, through Congress. And if if I were a congressman or a senator, you know, you can people will come to meetings if you ask them to sure. from town, or from almost anywhere really. Um, and you know, you, it's so easy to sort of it would be so easy to make yourself, I think, you know, the lead uh, lead exponent on whatever issue you cared a lot about. Right. And it's amazing how few of them do that, I guess. I'm sure their days seem totally full, but they never actually take advantage of the fact that they could have the right. best people in whatever area they care about come to their office and brief them and their staff and really
1: right. Which they how, used to how, how do. Few, how few of them care about it, but even more so, how few of them care about something that they actually are in a position to address, like an issue that is, Uh, from the committee they're on or the committee they chair. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to have a great idea about immigration reform, but if you're not on the committees that that are responsible for immigration reform, it's going to be a hard project to to do. Or if you're not somehow connected with the leader, uh, you you might as well not waste your time with that. Um, It could be a perfectly crafted bill, but it's probably not going anywhere. Um, And so the incentive structure, again, is not not very good. let me let me mention two other things. Yeah, right? Mention the reforms. Unless, no, no, go ahead. I, I, then I'll be done with those. No, I, no, I'm I, not I, I think, and I've come to this one very slowly and very grudgingly, um, that the Senate should change its rules and allow all legislation to pass by simple majority votes. The legislation itself always passes by a majority vote, but uh, it, it gets held up by a sixty vote requirement to cut off debate. And I don't see any reason for that to be in place any longer. Um, We've been in a period of long decline of that. It's gone from 67 members to 67 present and voting, now to 60. And that reflects the fact that the system's not working. I think it should be taken down to 51. I once asked Judge Bork about this at a conference. I said, do you think there's something a little, if not anti-constitutional, at least uh, semi-non-constitutional about the Senate putting a 60-vote requirement to get something done uh, when it's not in the Constitution anywhere? I mean, the Constitution could have done that. They did do it with, with treaties and um, amendments to the Constitution and so forth. And he thought about it and he said, well, you know, they are both the judges of their own rules, which is true. But the framers thought about this question, and you can see this in the Federalist Papers very clearly. They debated the notion. Madison talked about it particularly. Uh, Should we have a system in which uh, things pass by simple majorities, or should we require more? Uh, And uh, ultimately, they decided in this effort to balance some minimal efficiency of institutions with protection of liberties, that 50 simple majority vote was, was fine. That was plenty. So Congress now has 60. And and uh, what do we see? So, well, yeah. uh, well, tactically, uh, you know, uh, you can't do things without sixty votes, and so nothing is brought up on the floor unless it, you know in advance it has sixty votes, and, and that means a lot of things aren't brought up on the floor at all. I I have come to it very gradually and very slowly, and, and again somewhat haltingly because I, I worked in the minority and I worked in the majority, and and when you're in the minority, you can see the virtues of this. You know, it helps you stop things. But it was supposed uh, to stop.
0: Be- It was supposed to preserve a kind of minority rights against big legislation just being slammed down by 51 votes, which now happens on reconciliation anyway, but uh, it wasn't supposed to routinely stop everything. Everything. I mean, I remember when I came, you know, appropriations bills routinely were passed, 54, sure. 45, or whatever, and you didn't think anything of it. No one thought you should stop right. the, the regular appropriations and, bill and, the and way it, we're currently having with the shutdown. Just because that was just, of course you needed to have a majority vote because otherwise you couldn't function. Right. Now, if it's a huge bill, civil rights, Social Security, you know, yeah. then you go to the 60 voters. You, you would so want
1: to, to have a consensus around some of those things, like the Social Security program. But it's, it's even worse than we're saying at the moment, because you not only need 60 votes to pass something to end the filibuster to allow it to be voted on, you you need 60 votes if the majority want something and the minority's in a bad mood about it. You need 60 votes to proceed to the motion to consider it in the first place, yeah. before you even get to the debate. Now, why the Senate should be prevented even from debating something as opposed to passing it, by a minority is very hard for me to understand and so i'd be in favor of changing this and 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 going to simple majorities and i think that would be uh something which uh, might end up passing some pieces of legislation which you might otherwise not like uh you might pass some pieces of legislation you like that other people might not like but wherever it falls out for the two parties i think it's better for the country to have an institution like congress that can actually Effectively do things, yeah.
0: Okay, well that's one reform, and, and then
1: the next has to do with nominations. So that's a Senate reform, just yep. to be, yeah. And so is uh, my proposal with nominations. I, we've made some progress on nominations. Harry Reid uh, changed it so you only need 51 votes to break a filibuster on a nomination for all nominees except Supreme Court justices. He didn't do that for high-minded statesmen-like reasons. He couldn't get Obama judges through, and so he changed it. But I still think it was the right thing to do. Then Mitch McConnell broadened that to include Supreme Court justices. He, again, didn't do that for high-minded reasons. He realized that he would never get any Supreme Court nominee that President Trump nominated through the Senate if he didn't. But again, I think that was the right thing to do. And so you say, well, why, why are there literally hundreds of nominations that the Democrats have blocked? How can they do that? Why, do, why don't the Republicans just pass them? They have a majority in the Senate, after all there are all kinds of other rules including one particularly which is called the 30 hour rule right. and and that is that uh, once uh, once the majority leader files for cloture you get a cloture vote cut off debate the minority can require up to 30 hours of debate after the cloture vote um, and 30 hours on the senate floor is like a lifetime i mean i remember when i had to plead with senator dole who is the leader to give us one day on the floor please to pass some piece of legislation um, and so for big, important nominees, cabinet officials or Supreme Court justices, McConnell will say, "Okay, we'll take 30 hours, we'll run it out, and we'll pass it then. But for these other hundreds of nominees, you can't do that. And so, in effect, by saying we're going to insist on a 30 hours of debate, uh, the Democrats, with this resistance that they're doing, have effectively held up hundreds of nominees. Initially, uh, to some degree, the Trump administration was at fault for not sending up nominees, and there's still a few places where they probably should, but they haven't. But right now, the fault lies with the Senate Democrats, who are holding up literally hundreds of these people, many of whom were nominated for months last year uh, and now had to be renominated again come two weeks ago. Uh, I have a neighbor in particular who's been nominated to be the Federal Transit Administrator. I don't know what that job is, but uh, she came out of the uh, committee uh, with a near-unanimous vote of all Republicans and Democrats. But she sat on on the Senate floor for eight months. She can't be considered. Why? Well, because Democrats are blocked. I I would be in favor of immediately getting rid of the 30-hour rule and taking it either to zero or to a very small number of hours, like two. Um, There is absolutely nothing senators learn in this 30 hours of debate, nothing. Uh, In fact, if you look back at something like the Kavanaugh nomination, where they had to go through this 30-hour ritual, um, most of the Democratic senators had announced their opposition to him before he'd even opened his mouth. Uh, And and so it wasn't like they're going to learn something about him. Everybody knows everything about these nominees after they come out of committee for all practical purposes. So there's no reason not to do this. It's just a stall tactic. Certainly,
0: you could you could have 30 hours to be ordered for Supreme Court justices. Sure. Cabinet nominees. Sure. But for sub-cabinet and stuff yeah. like that? No,
1: for the assistant secretary of something or another, right. why? It's pure delay. It's I pure guess. delay. Yeah. Um, i tell you a little story. I, I, when I was at the State Department, I got a call from the White House. The White House said uh, there's a delegation of uh, British parliamentarians coming over from the House of Commons. Uh, that It seemed that the House of Commons was thinking about putting in some kind of system over there of uh, nominations and confirmations for their cabinet officials like we have. And um, I, I was kind of surprised to hear that, uh, but the White House asked, would you see them? Because you do more nominees than anybody in the government because we not only have to nominate uh, or, and confirm, I mean, our, our nominees for senior positions in the State Department, but also it's a constitutional requirement to confirm ambassadors, mm-hmm. and there are roughly 200 or more ambassadors, and if they have a three-year tenure, every year we were doing 60 or 70 ambassadors. So she said, would you come and talk to them and explain how this works? So I said, happy to. So I reserved the Secretary of State's fancy little conference room, you know, dark wood and all that. It was very nice. and. Um, the morning came when I was supposed to meet with them. I looked at my schedule and I saw oh, I have to meet with these guys. I really have no idea what I want to tell them here. I don't want to speak ill of American institutions to a group of, of, of foreigners, but on the other hand, I mean, there are some pluses and minuses here. Uh, so what I did was I gathered up all my papers uh, that I had, had for my nomination about three inches high and for my confirmation about three inches more high. Uh, all the same information, by the way, but in a different format, of course. And so I, I had it with me and Fortune would have it, I got totally stuck in the meeting right before this meeting with them. And I just couldn't extricate myself. I just I tried tried try finally I escaped. and I come crashing into the secretary's conference room about 10 minutes late, apologized profusely and so forth, put my papers down on the table and sat down and said, I'm very sorry to keep you guys waiting. And the, and the British guy was the head of the delegation, just like out of Central Casting, he's a wonderful guy, Oh, no worries, you know, and uh, so forth. And he said, in fact, I see you have quite a lot of work here with you. Uh, we won't hold you up very long. And I laughed and I said, well, that's actually not anything I'm working on. These are the papers that I had for my own nomination and my own confirmation. And they looked, uh, and it was like, uh, Something dawned on them. So we had a very pleasant conversation afterward and talked about the pluses and the minuses. But I realized through no intention of my own, I had killed this idea in the cradle in the first 30 seconds of the meeting when they saw how ridiculous this process had become. Right. And so I have been ever since awaiting calls from a grateful generation of British cabinet officials. Uh, but, yeah, I uh, have not had any, but I did get a nice little tin of mints with the uh, 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 House of Commons embossed on the top oh, that's of good. it. So that's I still good. have that.
0: That's good. Yes. I mean, it does show how Congress's dysfunction spills over into the executive branch because it's really a congressional dysfunction I would say the nomination and confirmation process it is, is imposed by congress sure. uh, there's an intra executive branch problems too sure. obviously but now it slows up it makes it impo- very difficult to staff an administration yeah. so again if you just want competent execution of government which the federalist stresses is pretty important you know yeah. for good government and for republican government uh, it's much but, less likely to happen.
1: And so my takeaway from it all is that somehow the uh, the members of Congress didn't think that the checks that the framers put in place were quite enough, and they had to put a whole bunch more checks on themselves. Right. And they have done this to the extent that the, they now have created the the very complexities that bedevil them if they weren't wasting their time on on Nominees and trying to get over 60 vote requirements and this ridiculous budget process and all the bills that get introduced that are going nowhere, they might have a chance, really, to look at smaller numbers of pieces of legislation, look at them more seriously, and also what what would be important is to conduct some genuine oversight once a bill is passed and becomes a law. um, For the most part, that's the last time Congress ever thinks (laughs) about it. Uh, That's that's a bit of an overstatement, but not much. Um, It would be very nice if, uh after uh, a major piece of legislation passed the congress would come behind and say how is the executive branch doing are they are they executing this in the way that we intended uh, is it working the and, way and, yeah we is this working it the way we intended and so forth they might actually learn something about their own work uh which they don't know uh, once it's done and gone and out that's pretty much the last you hear about it and the notion that a member of congress would ever acknowledge that they had made a mistake um I, I've, I've been around that institution personally since 1978. I've never heard that one time, <laughs> not one time.
0: But now, is there something about their own personal incentives that leads them not to be interested in the kinds of reforms you've been talking about because it would require them to actually take more positions on issues or actually do more work? I mean, why are they comfortable, or are they comfortable, I guess, with the current
1: well, situation? L- l- let me say then, this, this will probably be the harshest thing I say about them in this conversation, um, they've created a situation now in which um, they have managed to all but avoid accountability for anything. Uh, And by preening and taking positions and so forth, but not actually passing much legislation and not, uh, in a way, being responsible for it, they've, in effect, um, given over a lot of their power to the president, to the executive branch, to the independent agencies, and now to the courts. Um, And it seems to me uh, a very bad thing that they've kind of accustomed themselves to it, and that's kind of what they like. Uh, And they now are quite content with um, delegating their own responsibilities to somebody else and then simply coming behind and criticizing it when they don't like it or it hasn't worked out well. Uh, and that, that really, I, I think, is a very bad sign about the institution, that that's more their currency now than actual legislative handiwork or oversight. Um, in a way, um, uh, I, 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 I think I, I would say, what's wrong with Congress being weak and inefficient? You know, uh, for liberals, you know, the answer might be obvious. Well, if it were stronger, it would pass more laws, and that's good. Other things equal, the more laws you pass, the better. Mm -hmm. For conservatives, it's a little harder argument, but I I think, nevertheless, it's true. And that is, if Congress were the only institution in Washington that was part of the federal government and it did nothing, that might be just fine. Mm -hmm. i do nothing, Congress. Well, they're not doing any harm anywhere. But instead, what happens is they, they kind of leave the field open to the president, and you've seen this with executive orders on immigration with Obama, and then with Trump, both. Um, things mm-hmm. which they never would have necessarily done if Congress had actually done its work and passed some kind of a broad immigration reform bill. So the president, the executive And branch, I would just say
0: on that, I think the bitterness would be less if voters felt, look, it was debated, it was discussed, yeah. there were amendments, yeah. and you know, finally they passed right. something, 6535, right. that we, we, on... we might have lost, but yeah. now it seems like, you know, Right. Things are drifting along, nothing changes, the system is broken, and then the president slaps something down one day, right. and then there's a sudden change. But right. other parts are changed. And, you I, know.
1: I, I, I agree totally. I mean, it, you know, if, if the Congress had hashed it all out and said, well, okay, I mean, we agreed to $3 billion for a wall, I mean, that's been agreed to. Or right. we agreed that we would now give citizenship to these DACA people, okay, that's been agreed to. Or we got rid of the diversity lottery, or we made the main part of the uh, immigration uh, requirements uh, job-related, as opposed to family-related, as they are now, or whatever. People, I think, would have a sense that the Congress has spoken, and, 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 and both parties have somehow agreed to this, hopefully. Um, and, and Barack Obama—I mean, it's a very uh, strange uh, thing for a constitutional lawyer, as he says he is, to say, well, since the Congress hasn't acted, I will. I mean, it's not like he has some new authority to act just because the Congress hasn't, but in fairness, it does does offer that temptation. It does leave the field open to say, well, they haven't done anything. I could at least do this and this, and so presidents do this. Uh, the executive branch as a whole does this. We've had long debates over whether there's a kind of deep state or not, uh, and certainly the independent agencies do this. I mean, these agencies now, Congress is empowered to do 90% of all the things that govern us. Uh, the Federal Register being 85,000 pages long, and the amount of legislation that's passed being very small, minuscule fraction of that uh those folks seem to feel like they have the right both to legislate and to execute and also to judge um and if you get a foul of one of the independent regulatory agencies you you have a big problem because there's no accountability and there's no going back i mean and uh, finally again district court judges i mean how could district court judges put national injunctions Mm. on individual cases that affect one person um if congress had already just spoken to this and so I mean, there are all kinds of fields that, that Congress has left simply in abeyance. Immigration reform, the whole question about the use of force abroad and more powers, trade policy. President Trump seems to think he's in charge of trade policy. Well, the last time I read Article 1, Section 8 in the Constitution, the Congress had a that role, explicit, and, in fact, yeah, the role yeah. uh, in regulating commerce with foreign nations. Uh, and they had worked out with previous administrations of a way to do this that made sense with fast track. Uh, President Trump puts tariffs on China, threatens the Canadians with tariffs, threatens uh, you know, the Europeans with tariffs. And, and the Congress does what? Short answer, yeah. nothing. Yeah. Uh, and so they've sort of seeded that whole field now to the president. Uh, uh, even in healthcare, care, uh, I mean, where they actually did something, if you read the 906-page Obamacare bill, which most people, and I'm guessing maybe President Obama would be included in this, haven't, every other page Congress gives enormous grants of discretionary authority to the secretary. Right. who's the secretary? Well usually it's the Secretary of HHS. And so the Secretary of HHS now has discretionary authority to do things that he never would have had if this bill hadn't passed and that's why it's been so easy for President Trump to dismantle parts of it because mm. it's not founded in anything uh, that really came out of the Congress uh, and had congressional support on both sides.
0: I mean one of the things that's striking when you look back at the Federalist papers, uh, which is where you sort of begin with the book, uh, is the distinction between the Senate and the House, I would say, and their understanding going forward of what it's going to be like. One will be more representative body, the other will be more deliberative, and all, all the obvious things. A lot has changed since then, the way of the mode of elections, editors, most notably, I suppose, or one of the most notable aspects of, of what's changed. But I'm struck at our conversation. Your book's mostly about the Senate, I think it's fair to say. More um, more so. More about the Senate. But in our conversation, we've been talking about Congress without much distinction because, the, I mean, is it fair to say the Senate has become more like the House in the sense of just the House always had a slight tendency towards a kind of party loyalty, majoritarianism, strong speaker?
1: The House always has a tendency to have strong leadership uh, because, as the framers point out in the Federalist Papers, the bigger the body, the more likely there are some silent springs of action running the whole thing that you may see or you may not see. Usually, you can because it's the leadership. and and the speaker and the the assistant leader in the the Rules Committee. Um, And and, uh, so, in that sense, I think the Senate has become a little bit more like the House. I spent a lot of time in the book uh, thinking about this question that the framers put, namely that uh, not only is representative government good in and of itself to, to narrow down the people, number of people who are making decisions, but that the people we elected would be better than we are.
0: Yeah, well, let's talk about that. Right? Um, and is <laughs> Just that to make really... sure you're not confirmed again, Freddie? Freddy, is, yeah, Freddy executive yeah, branch. Uh... <laughs> it's too late if anybody ever looked at this. I,
1: I, I could never be confirmed for anything, but um, I. I I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. What does that mean, actually? Better in what ways? It's so on pc to say one person's better than another one now. But um, I, I think they had in mind a number of things. One, um, that um, these, these people would be uh, wealthier. Uh, Two, that they'd be better educated. Three, that they'd have more connections with their state or district that they came from than the average person did. Four, that they'd be uh, a little more facile with the use of words and argumentation and that sort of thing. And finally, uh, that they might, and this was the point at which Madison hedged, uh, might or might not be more virtuous. Um, I think, probably in some of those ways, also more education. If you look at the statistics, members of Congress both have more education than the average American. They're certainly wealthier than the average American. They certainly have more connections in their states or districts than the average American. Most of them, having come out of uh, law practice or, or um, a lower office somewhere, have more uh, knowledge of how to use words and make arguments and so forth than the average American. And finally, um, I, I, I think, um, On the question of uh, virtue, that, it strikes me to say, based on now 40 or 50 years of watching this institution and knowing so many of these people, uh, that members of Congress do not have more virtue than most Americans, and Madison points out that sometimes if you have more knowledge, but uh, less virtue, it's worse than if you didn't have more knowledge in the first place. Uh, And to a certain extent, I I do not see any um, superior virtue in. People, uh, when, I won't name names here, but but I could so easily. Uh, if you look at some of these people that you see just on the news, even, um, they're not advancing something which arguably is good for the country. They're advancing a, some kind of agenda that they support or their party supports or something, and 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 um, I, I just don't see that uh, that hope of the framers that these people. Uh, would refine and enlarge the views of people, uh, maybe up to a ex- certain extent, but not uh, when it comes really to uh, having more virtue to do the right thing as opposed to do something.
0: Is that a, maybe more of a phenomenon of developments outside Congress, I suppose, in society in media and media? Yeah, I
1: think uh, so. Uh, I mean, to, to the extent uh, that— uh, More
0: democratic. You want, you want someone who represents your opinions, not who— it yeah. refines them yeah, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, yeah. um,
1: interestingly you touched on the question of the, the change in the mode of becoming a senator from from being selected by a state legislature to be uh, elected through direct election I, I have thought long and hard about that and and I, I've I've read everything that people have written arguing that it would be better to go back somehow to this older way mm-hmm. I, I just don't see that I guess yeah. I I when you look at the older way um, The argument is that the Senators then cared more about their states than they do now. I'm not sure that's true Um, uh, now. uh, Senators still do. And, I, I, you know, we used to spend a lot of time when I worked for a senator concerned with state things. What grants are we getting here and there and this and that? And how does this affect our state? As very many members were with this change in the tax code and the tax bill that's going to hit high-income states like New York harder. Uh, And and so members still care about their states. The other half of it is that uh, I'm not so sure the members that were elected by state or chosen by state legislatures cared more about their states than they did about whatever the faction in the legislature that picked them wanted. Uh, And there are some real horror stories about some of these characters that came into the Senate by being chosen by state legislatures uh, uh, that that really had very base motives. And and so I, I guess I'm not one who thinks there's reason really to Um, change that back from direct election. Uh, In particular, if you read the Federalist Papers fairly closely in that regard, you see they say that they put in this Senate mode uh, because it was more congenial to public opinion, by which it meant they could not have gotten this Constitution passed if if they hadn't done it that way. And and so uh, there's a hint there too that maybe as the country becomes more homogenized and the national government takes more shape and uh, that maybe we wouldn't need to do it that way, that yeah. you could look at it. There was a, a, a motion offered in the Constitutional Convention uh, to do direct election of senators. It lost uh, by, by a big vote. Uh, but how did the vote occur? By states the way votes occurred in the convention. Right. So it's 10 to 1 against it, I think, something like that. Uh, and uh, there was a whole history ever since that point of, of, of people campaigning to try to get the Senate uh, elected the same way House members are.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's practical at a Democratic age either to go back to the legislature, yeah. electing senators. And as you say, I think it's, it's one of those things, some conservatives are, Kind of constitutional types of hit upon because yes. it was the old the way it was done in the old days before the progressives. But right. the truth is, as and, you say, and, and, there's very little evidence. And, and when you really it, think it would about be a little
1: it. like term limits. I think you you would need to expend so much work to get a constitutional amendment passed yeah. for a result which is so uncertain. Yeah, uh, as that to my mind, it it wouldn't really make any difference.
0: And it's a way of not grappling, I think, with the problems. No. which it's a sort of simplistic uh, gimmick, almost, or no. you know, which you you really, in this book, and I hope in this conversation, have really, you know, focused on the the actual processes. I mean, it is very important. I think. Well, let me say this. I want to I want to ask you a little bit about the executive branch. For take advantage of having you here, since you've were Assistant Secretary of State and uh, saw that up close too. Uh, but uh, I, I mean, so much of the Federalist. When you really read the whole Federalist, and not just the Federalist Ten and Fifty One and the famous you know, snippets and um, I mean, it is, they were ve- thinking very hard about institutional design and how no. things would work so as to both limit government appropriately but make government effective where you wanted government to act and how to get better Rep- representatives who both were representative but also were wiser than the people. And I mean, it, I, I think one great virtue of your book is that it's an attempt to think institutionally in terms of well, what could be fixed and not in some utopian way. It would be great if all of our congressmen and senators were wonderful people, and Didn't you know, but, but sort of a serious way uh, that we are operating you know, m- much less than optimally just in terms of the, the incentives and the, sure. and the processes that are in place. I think it's funny. I, I find, though, I'm, I'm in Washington here, and people don't really talk much about that. you think it would be sort of such a core issue in thinking about government, I mean, what, you know, but... The, well, I, 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 I
1: agree. I mean, I, I the, that it's, uh, Congress has over these last 40 or 50 years lost so much of its uh, power and authority that uh, people don't focus so much on it. They focus much more naturally on the presidency.
0: Or they focus on issues. I guess what I'm saying is the institutional way of thinking about politics itself seems right. to be to be... But right. uh, I, I, lacking, I, I mean, let's I, I like, well, we'll have, I have agree. a debate about health care, which is fine, or let's we'll have right. a debate about this or that, or, right. but not sort of this actual structural stuff, which is very important if you care about the longer term, presumably.
1: Well, I, I think so, and, and uh, uh, we're, we're, we're getting the government we deserve in that regard, I guess, so uh, that we don't think so much about it. With regard to the president, I mean, the, the framers spent a lot of time, thinking about that office because no office like that had ever existed before. This yeah. was a brand new thing. And so there you can see them going back and forth, trying to figure, how can we make this strong enough so that it could conceivably defend itself against this behemoth, this Leviathan, this Congress, you know, which has got and read Article One, Section Eight. If anybody wants to see what powers Congress has, it, it's right across the board. Every power that you can imagine is in the Congress, not in the presidency. You read Article Two, Section Two, which describes the president's powers. You know, it's a few sentences. Um, but um, the, the, the framers tried very hard just to get the presidency beefed up to the point where it could defend itself uh, against the Congress. Um, but uh, now we see situation which is very much different from that and um, which the Congress really has given away its authorities which is not supposed to delegate but it uh, but it has um, why well to some extent this progressive view of government uh, to some extent uh, um, they like it um, to some extent because the courts have never uh pulled back from uh, this and allowed and they've simply allowed Congress to delegate to especially to the independent agencies from nineteen thirty five onward. Uh and and Congress is going out of its way increasingly to give away its powers. If you look at the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, there they've they've structured something which doesn't even require a congressional appropriation to run. This in the old days, I mean in nineteen seventy eight when I first showed up this would have been Absurd yeah. that that you couldn't get anything ever funded in that multi-year way because the Congress wanted to do it every year, uh, and and so there was never going to be a question of an endowment for something. It was always going to be an annual appropriation. They gave it entirely away. Or if you look at the uh, the uh, legislative veto, uh, which Congress was all too happy to give the president total responsibility if only they could second-guess him. Right. Uh, and that, finally, the court did step in, in in 1983 and take away, saying that just because Congress wanted to give away its authority, it didn't have the right to. But look at something like the line item veto. I, I could imagine why somebody likes the line item veto. If you're a budget hawk, uh, if you're um, interested in saving money. Um, Sure, give the president the ability to just take a whole appropriation bill and say no to this, no to that, no to the next thing. But this would be to give away the core power that Congress has. Nevertheless, they've they've been willing to do it. They've simply been stopped by the court in this case again, uh, happily, uh, because what, what would this encourage? Now you maybe have a, an appropriation bill for $100 billion to do something, right? It goes to the President, and it's the President's hard decision. If he hadn't been able to change it to suit him before it finally got to him, maybe he can still wiggle around the edges and not veto it by doing this signing statement thing that they do now. But if you had a line item veto, I mean, you wouldn't have a $100 billion appropriation bill. You'd have a $500 billion right. appropriation right. bill. Just... Because members would just stuff it up with stuff that they would then take credit for, except for that mean president who'd struck it out of the bill. Uh, it would be as if to say the, the line item veto is like a Congressional Irresponsibility Act, which it would be. But nevertheless, there's a sizable chunk of them, in this case, conservatives who can't right. think how else to cut federal spending, who are prepared to give away this institutional authority. Which which would completely neuter Congress?
0: Yeah, that's such a good example. I think of thinking s- seriously, I would say institutionally, as opposed to yeah. This seems like a good. This seems like kind a good of thing. Of, you yeah, know, here, this, we, we, do, we all like spending, so yeah, let's do this. Let's cut yeah. spending. I mean, and, and uh, the result
1: would be, um, you know, the president would have all the authority in the world. Then, um, t-
0: tell me a little. I'm, we hadn't really planned on this, but you were just Secretary of State, as you've mentioned, you four years i guess a second bush term uh, most of four years all of four years well, I can
1: not not quite all it took me a, uh, it took me a while to get confirmed Confirm. myself i uh, don't want to make it look like my uh, <laughs> yeah. comments on confirmation had something to do with my own personal case but right. I, I did struggle a bit um, i remember it's ridiculous i, so I you had um, to go through. i had to express some views on cuba that i didn't think the sanctions had worked all that well in 30 years we still had castro running the place why didn't we simply get rid of that and inundate right. the place with americans well that didn't go over in some quarters so well, but uh, in fairness, now we're almost at sixty years, and it still hasn't worked very well. But uh, uh, so I, I had some issues, so I didn't get there until later on in two thousand five.
0: But most of the second. Yep. So I'm just curious, you hadn't been in the executive branch; you had been very close to it, obviously as a senior been. member of yes. uh, senior staff in Congress, and then as a uh, government relations person in Washington. But most of your work had been congressionally focused. So what surprised you? I mean, what would what was your what was your lesson from? From being at a you know, high level of a major department, I mean, works better than you thought, less well than you thought. Well, uh, bureaucracy's too powerful, not powerful enough. Uh, you, you know, competent I, people, not competent people. A, a
1: number of things. The first thing was what what surprised me was uh, how how little I had really to do with anybody except the appropriations committees. Uh, that was the first thing. That, I mean, I I knew this intellectually, but to to see it in person yeah, that that I sense. had to spend all my time. Dealing with Frank Wolf and not at all with Dick Luger, uh, I mean, it was, a, was something I didn't expect. Uh, and so that, that was one thing. Um, secondly, um, I, I realized that there were a lot of people in Congress who didn't act the way we did when I was there. Uh, when I was there, we tried very hard to work together with the executive branch. Uh, it, it helped that uh, when I was staff director, there was a, a, an administration of the same political party. And at that time, George Shultz was the Secretary of State. And so every two weeks, uh, he and his chief legislative guy would have a breakfast with the Chairman Luger and me, either in his office at the State Department or in my office as it happened on the Hill. And we tried very much to coordinate. And when we said we couldn't be for something, uh, which was a very hard time for Senator Luger, that he had to disappoint George Shultz on the Africa san- South Africa sanctions bill because they didn't want this in law. They were willing to do it as an executive order. But but, but we were transparent about it and, and so forth. Um, what surprised me a little bit was that not everybody in the Congress acts quite that way. Uh, and uh, there are things that they try to put in bills that they've never even asked you about, um, which are sometimes very bad ideas. Um, and, and so I, I spent a lot of time putting out fires that I didn't think I would necessarily have to do, even from members of the same party that I was Working with at that point, and so. That, How
0: about the executive branch itself? I mean, did it work better than you expected? Was the quality of people uh, I, I th- better? I think the quality
1: of people struck me as, generally speaking, quite good, and people were knowledgeable, uh, more knowledgeable than uh, their counterparts on the Hill usually, uh, and so. Uh, and the I,
0: state's I, a little special with the oh, foreign service. It's not a, quite a little, like a little good, bit, maybe, yeah. but.
1: Um, but, but still in all, even with people at DOD or at the NSC, uh, I, I had the same feeling that uh, I, was, I was surrounded by pretty capable people. Uh, I didn't always agree with them. I didn't always agree with people in my own administration. This was something that, uh, again, I had known intellectually, but it surprised me to see it in person, how much uh, back and forth there is at a lower level in the executive branch uh, trying to um, do things that the, maybe even the president wouldn't support uh, trying to make our policy toward country AX this way, not that way. Uh, and so there were a lot of times when I, I felt like uh, uh, I, I was, in a way, trying to uh, make sure that the State Department was consistent with what I thought the Secretary of State wanted to do, much less the Congress. Uh, and that was not always easy. There were a lot of differences of opinion within the executive branch uh, and even within our department. Uh, There was one occasion which was kind of amusing. Uh, Our assistant secretary from the Middle East wanted to uh, uh, get Saudi Arabia into the visa waiver program, the program where you can get a visa to come to the United States without an interview with a consular official, and uh, you can just do it by online. Um, And this is a real every country wants this, of course, especially wealthy Saudis. Did I have some Saudi have to go down to the consulate? You know, it's it's so grubby. You know, why not? The staff just fill this stuff out online, right? This was a real deliverable. Uh, the Assistant Secretary for Council Affairs thought this would be a disaster, that 19 of the 20 hijackers had come from Saudi Arabia and that she knew who was gonna get the blame if there was another event like that. It wasn't gonna be the Assistant Secretary for the Middle East, it was gonna be her. Why did you change the visa program and so forth? So they were just at loggerheads, fought about this for months. And finally, they couldn't figure out any other way to solve this. They didn't want to take it up to Secretary Rice. She didn't want to deal with this kind of internal disagreement. She wanted people to work this out. So they came to me and said, "Look, you're 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 on our level. Um, why don't you decide? Why don't you go up to the hill and see if people think this is a good idea or a bad idea?" And so I said, "Okay." And they so they agreed they would abide by whatever I came back with. And so you can imagine the temptation. I mean, I thought it was a bad idea personally. I mean, why? Well, what, what do these people do to deserve to get in this program? I mean, and, and uh, I could have, I suppose, just sat at my desk and made up, you know, uh, an answer to this. But I didn't. And, and in fairness, I went up and I talked to some R's and some D's on the Senate side and the House side and I kind of perused a little matrix of 10 or 12 people. I, I, I may have asked a few more people I knew would be against it. Mm-hmm. But but I came back and, and said, well, look, uh, you know, uh, this— they does not think this is a good idea and so they said okay so the mm-hmm. Middle East guy dropped it mm-hmm. and it, we went forward we never did do that um, it, it was it was a wonderful thing for me I had no idea how good this would be because I could get a passport for people in no time and my record was 20 minutes once when a friend was at Dulles and found her passport had been expired I said Messenger it down. We'll turn around. And messenger it right back. She so, wrote such good turns with oh, the she, passport. She really. loved Consular me. Affairs she loved me. Uh, so at any rate, the
0: pulling string still works in yeah, our. Government. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> um,
1: but I, I again, through no intention. There's just the happy result of that. But uh, but th- there is always a lot of contesting going on in the executive branch for what the policies should be. I remember this, uh, Secretary Rice was very vexed by this problem about uh, whether the United States should drop off the Human Rights Council in the UN or not. And of course, there were some people who said, yes, you know, for sure. And then you can imagine the entirety of the more diplomatic types at the State Department, oh, no, no, very bad idea. We need to be there. We need to be in the fight, be in the mix, and so forth. And so um, there's, there's a lot of uh, it's not as if the executive branch is, is a monolith coming against the Congress. Um, it, it 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 sometimes doesn't figure out itself what it wants because it's fighting with itself right um and and that surprised me a little bit the extent to which that was the case uh on north korea policy in particular i mean it was a just a knockdown drag out internal fight about whether you know yeah. we should we should do these negotiations with north korea the six party talk so called or not and you know it was it was really uh you know very tough stuff
0: yeah that's interesting i on that, too, I think, a little bit. Young people coming to Washington, should they go to work on the Hill or not?
1: Well, having just uh, denounced the Hill for an hour now, I, I, let, let me say this. I, I, I think if anybody's interested in, in government or Washington but doesn't know exactly what they want to do, uh, Congress is a perfect place. Um, if you know what you want to do and you um, uh, want to take the Foreign Service exam and, and spend your, your life as a career Foreign Service officer and, and do that, Great, do that. If you want to get in the intelligence side of things and basically end up spending most of your life in that uh, channel, I, I think, great, do that. Um, if you're not sure, uh, I, I think there's no better place than the Congress. If you come in as a congressional staff person, and I tell my students this, you know, you will see in the course of a month everybody that has any interest in anything going on in Washington, which these days is just about everybody, you'll, you'll deal with other staff on in your own congressperson's office, you'll deal with people from other members' staffs, you'll deal with committee staffs, you'll deal with the executive branch who interact with you a lot, you'll deal with the press, you'll deal with uh, single-issue groups, you'll deal with lobbyists, you'll deal with corporations, you'll deal with constituents. Everybody who's got any interest in what's happening in Washington comes through there and you can sort of figure out what your best step is next, whether you really like this or you don't like this. Um, For the same reason that I, I also all these aspiring lawyers that I seem to have in my classes who are fourth-year students at UVA now, I, um, I ask them, you know, have you ever done an internship for a summer in a law firm? Maybe you'll like this. Maybe you won't. Um, Congress is a good place to test out what you might like or what you don't like. Maybe you'll be sick of the whole thing and and, and move to California. I, I don't know, but maybe you'll discover that uh, you kind of like this and and you'll stay for a while, and then you'll figure out that you can move somewhere else, either into the executive branch or into a corporation or into a lobbying firm, if you kind of like that and, and the, the lucrative pay and all of that. I mean, you, you can sort of map out your future in a little bit more intelligent way if you've had a chance to just look at all this stuff right in front of you for a year or two, I think. Yeah. So I, I recommend it as a good thing to do. Jobs are hard to find. Everybody who applies for a job has a bachelor's degree. Some of them have master's degrees. You don't need it. but
0: Some of them have PhDs like so you did. You yeah. came to Washington and yes. well, been professors, right? So. Yeah. Uh,
1: so um, I, I recommend that if, if you can to do that. But if you can't find a job, uh, do something else but intern up there. Tell, tell congressman or center you'll work for free. You know, every Wednesday, Friday, and Monday afternoon, or something, you, and and if you're around and you help and you do good, if you solve more problems every day than you create, uh, and then something opens up, well, you're a natural candidate at that point to fill that job, because everybody knows who you are, and 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 and, and uh, uh, you may have uh, expended six months or nine months, you know, living poorly and as an intern, unpaid, and working at Starbucks or something, but you know, you, you'll you turn this into a job opportunity sooner or later, I think, if you've got anything at all going for you.
0: Yeah, I do think it's a place you can be entrepreneurial. I mean, so much of America is yeah. corporate or bureaucratic and, you know, you move up and yes. you, it, you're in this niche and then you move to that niche. Absolutely, the very, very different, different than
1: the civil service, for example, yeah. where there there are step grades and then 10 grades within each step and so forth. And yeah, specialties. And, 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 you know. and it protects you on the downside. I mean, it's almost impossible to fire somebody in the civil service. Right. like. Give an example in my book here about that, but um, it protects you on the downside, but it limits how much you can go on the upside. On the hill, there's no downside protections. If your member decides one day he doesn't like your tie, you know you, you could be fired for no reason at all. Other than that, uh, or if your member is killed in a plane crash, or the party's change control, and or you know your member changes to a different committee and wants somebody with some more background in that area than this area, you have no no protection at all. But on the other hand, most people are young. Uh, a lot of them aren't married, certainly in, in, with today's demographic, none of them have kids. And, and so it's the perfect time to do this, because on the upside, you're not limited either. And you can go from somebody who steps in as a 22, 23-year-old, freshly-minted college graduate who's uh, maybe doing correspondence or being some legislative scut work of some kind, um, in two, three, four years, you know, you can you could be the chief of staff to a subcommittee that's got a hundred billion dollars worth of, of of money under its uh, control, and, and 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 there's no real bound to the upside. And so, for young people especially who who can do this, I mean, it's not something you you can do when you're older and you've got a family and you you have responsibilities. You can't necessarily take some job that you could get fired from the next day, but um, um, young people can do that, and, uh, and and I usually encourage them to do just that if they don't know what else they want to do, but they have a kind of a vague interest in, in government.
0: Well, that's good advice. I think I, I give them the same, but I didn't work on the Hill, but uh, the breadth and the fluidity, the breadth of what you get exposed to and the sort of fluidity of the of the jobs and the chance to you know i thought i was interested in this but you know what this is pretty fascinating and i yep. pretty and i thought i was good at this but i'm actually better at that and you, you can find those things out about yourself yeah much more than i think and more and and
1: insofar as i've argued job. the staff is too powerful that's the virtue of going and being a staff member is that the, you will right. you will find that you have a lot of uh, of authority fairly quickly if you're any good at all and, and then
0: you can Act as a staffer to fix the hill and fix Congress in the way that you recommend in the book. So that would well, be the best if, of all that, worlds. That, that there, that would
1: be uh, too much to hope for, almost.
0: But no. Uh, I, well, I hope this conversation has helped people think about that. As I said, for me, the, the just the model in your book, and I hope in this conversation of of trying to think seriously in the spirit of the founders, uh, in that kind of institutional way, in terms of the design of the institutions, the incentives, the structures, as opposed to, gee, I think we should do you know. Right, raise the minimum wage, or let's just focus okay. on that. Let's. But thinking about ultimately, the success of the government depends probably less on all these different policies. It depends on some huge policies, of course, getting getting them right. But right. It depends less on getting this policy perfectly right and that policy perfectly right, and more on having a self-governing system that that functions I, well. I,
1: I I think that's that's right. That's certainly where the framers wanted the authority and the power to be. Is in a, in a group that uh, came out of the people um, in a way that. Um, you might say no one in the executive branch does except the president and the vice president. No one in the independent regulatory agencies do. No one in the courts do. Uh, this, this was the branch that was, was supposed to be accountable to people. And unfortunately, as we've discussed, it sort of delegated away a lot of its own authorities. My, my immediate hope is that the uh, Senate Republicans will get rid of this 30-hour rule. That would be the first thing they could do. They talked about it the other day at a conference. Uh, they haven't quite gotten the nerve up to do it uh but they certainly should they certainly okay. should and when that
0: happens we'll take credit for it right here well, for, this, for this absolutely, conversation absolutely for your, absolutely jeff berger thank you very much for thank joining you, me Bill. today I appreciate it. Uh,
1: and thank you for joining us on conversations